Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Election Countdown, your regular update on the UK's general election from the Financial Times. I'm Miranda Green, standing in for Seb, who is out on the campaign trail. But as you might have heard, our politics podcast is now the Election Countdown for the next few weeks, and we will be guiding you through the highs and lows of the campaign. As well as this, our Saturday analysis of the week, we're recording mini midweek updates on a Wednesday evening, so do look out for those in your feed. And in this episode, we'll be dissecting the Labour Party's manifesto, the most radical inner generation as it's billed, to see whether the sums add up and whether it can revive Jeremy Corbyn's stalling campaign. We'll also be looking at the Lib Dems policy platform and whether the first TV debate has changed much. Plus, I'll be speaking to two of our podcast regulars on the road in marginal seats. So first of all, I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, economics editor, Chris Giles, columnist Robert Shrimsley and Whitehall correspondent Seb Payne. Chris and George, let's take a look at this Labour manifesto. I mean, even though clearly we're expecting the Conservative manifesto over this weekend, and there have already been signs that the Tory party wants to turn on the spending taps, they cannot match the scale of tax spend borrowing in the Labour package. And Chris, presumably, nor would they want to, because they'll want to attack this as an irresponsible set of proposals, weren't they? Yes. What I think was really interesting is that the Conservatives might well be quite similar to Labour in 2017, but they're going to be nothing like Labour in 2019. So they will borrow more for investment, the Conservatives will, and they will tax more. They've already announced that they're not going to go ahead with some tax cuts that were planned and in the numbers. So that is then a tax increase, although they wouldn't put it that way. They like to talk about a pause in the tax cuts, but it's a tax increase. So they are going to do all the same sort of thing, but tiny scale compared with Labour. Labour is huge. You can't really exaggerate how big this is. So £80 billion a year of current day-to-day spending and taxation and another £55 billion of capital tax spending means that we're talking in the £130, £140 billion a year. Now, some people think £100 million a year is a lot of money. It is for you or me, an enormous amount. But £140 billion in the scale of the UK economy is about 5% of the UK economy. That is an enormous change over a few years to have that sort of change to the UK economy. And you you can say two things. One is it doesn't make us a North Korea. It doesn't mean we're some sort of communist country. It means we're sort of more in the mainstream of where Europe is. But to do it in five years, enormous. George, one of the criticisms that our paper made of the Labour package the morning after was to point out that this was actually a very European remodelling of the British economy or would be should Labour gain a majority, we should say. And really, you know, this was more like a sort of French model of the economy and it would be really to change the nature of the UK irrevocably. Yes, I mean, the comparison that we made was with the 1981 Francois Mitterrand programme, which he had to abandon very swiftly as the markets rebelled 
against his policy. And I suspect something similar could happen in this case. Look, in the 2017 manifesto, Labour were very keen to point out that this was very much in the mainstream of European social democratic thinking. And that's the argument they're using again in this case, except for the fact it's being done at breakneck speed. The size of the state is being grown exponentially over a very short space of time. There's obviously a very big question about whether A, this can be afforded and B, whether the state could even spend this money this quickly. I think Chris would have something to say about that. But strategically, I think it's really interesting because nobody in this election wasn't going to vote for Labour because the Labour Party was insufficiently left wing. So I'm a bit surprised they've gone as far as they have. It's almost as if the Corbynites know that it's possible they aren't for. In fact, indeed, probable they're not going to win the election. But this is about transforming the Labour Party, putting down a series of policy markets, which they hope will become mainstream Labour thinking in the years to come. So, in fact, it's not really a manifesto for government, in a sense. It's an enormous political signalling exercise. Exactly. Or is that overstating I mean, it? I don't think it is. I mean, you look at the opinion polls, nobody thinks the Labour Party is going to be able to win an outright majority in this election. The best that Jeremy Corbyn can hope for is he'll be part, head of some sort of minority government, in which case the people propping him up, you would imagine, would start to trim off some of the more extreme elements of the programme. But no, I think it's, uh, it's very much Jeremy Corbyn signalling what he'd like to do. And the problem is that the voters have kind of rumbled this style of politics. And um, David Axelrod, who was advising Ed Miliband back in the 2015 election, said it was like sort of the, the Labour policy offering was very simplistic. It was almost like vote Labour, get a microwave. Well, Jeremy Corbyn is essentially offering, saying vote Labour, get a full fitted kitchen with the granite worktops and everything else. It's <laughs> a huge, it's a huge programme and someone else is going to pay for it. And voters aren't stupid. They know that someone else is going to have to pay for it. And they don't really believe it's just going to be the 5% of rich people that Jeremy, and companies that Jeremy Corbyn says, because in the end, you know, with most Labour governments, they end up having to go much further down the income scale to make the sums add up. Chris, what do you think about this credibility issue? I mean, clearly, immediately, the Institute for Fiscal Studies was talking, as you have here today, about the scale of the Labour plans, but also talking about this credibility issue. Of course, Labour's outriders have since started an attack on the IFS. But, you know, they are, in a sense, the only arbiters we've got left of an era of politics where whether your promises were actually deliverable was an issue at an election. Have we just moved beyond this into a selection of fantasies and which fantasy do you prefer? A little bit. I mean, I think we can just talk about how difficult it would be to do some of the things that Labour are proposing. And this is why the IFS used some quite intemperate language for them yesterday. So on the spending side, you know, we're talking £140 billion a year. Now, if you think about what a mess the British state has made of HS2, for example, that in total is over about 30-year period or 20-year period of its building, we think it's going to be about £80 billion. We're talking £140 billion every year. Now, if you think the British state will be effective in that, well, then I'm a banana, to, to borrow a phrase. Uh, and... On the tax side, the thing that's really striking about the Labour plan is not the total level of tax as a share of the national economy, because that's, as they will say, quite a standard European level, but it's how skewed it is, particularly towards companies. And seeing as companies are these sort of amorphous bad things that we can just extract money out of and have no other consequence 
whatsoever. Britain already has corporate tax revenues higher than the international average and higher than France and Germany, even though our tax rates are lower because we tax more aspects of profits than other countries, although at a lower rate. So we get more money out of companies than France and Germany. And if we're then going to essentially double down on that, we're going to try and get much, much more money. And if you think that has no effect whatsoever, well, then I think you're not living in the real world because people are quite sticky. They don't like to move countries if tax rates change, they prefer to pay them. But companies, well, they certainly can move their profits around and that's what we are taxing. So that gets rather difficult. So it's very, very hard, I think, credibly to say only the top 5% and this thing called companies, which don't actually pay tax because taxes are in the end paid by people, are the people who'll be losing here. And the credibility, I think the public, maybe they don't understand the ins and outs of tax incidents, but they do know that it doesn't probably add up. So, George, Chris has put his finger on it here, hasn't he, which is that actually the message is to kind of divide. So you either agree with the Labour Party that businesses are the baddies, in which case let's place a great tax burden on them, or you're the enemy, as it were, the capitalists who shouldn't be listened to. I mean, I wonder if you agree with that analysis and what the sort of political message is. But also, I'm really interested in this thing where they want to impose a lot of new taxes on the oil industry in Scotland, because surely... In Scotland, the oil industry can't be painted as a baddie. Isn't that a political misstep if they're trying to hold on to some of those few Scottish seats that they still hold? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And the Labour manifesto talks about some sort of fund that they would create to support the oil industry communities, places like Aberdeen. But frankly, that's not going to wash with people. So I think it's a misstep in Scotland. I think we're talking about a battleground of working class seats and how do you best connect with working class people. Theresa May, back in 2017, also took the approach that was best to bash business. Um, she put massive distance between herself and the business community. She refused to have people in to meet her at number 10 Downing Street. She wants to put workers on board. So it was a very hostile to business approach. And that only got her so far into the north. It's quite interesting that Boris Johnson, although he announced this week he was scrapping plans to cut corporation tax, which, you know, again, was a recognition that maybe business is not altogether seen as a good guy in this debate. Nevertheless, it's quite important that Boris Johnson is taking a different approach to business, notwithstanding Brexit, to Theresa May, who celebrates entrepreneurship, who celebrates profits and the free market economy. And that's very different. I think Boris Johnson calculates that people actually realise that actually these corporations, as Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell like to call them, don't like using the word company because it sounds a bit less menacing, I think. They do employ people and they pay taxes and people's pensions, are, of course, tied up in the dividends and all the rest of it. And the money's got to come from somewhere. So... I think Jeremy Corbyn's gone a little bit too far on this thing. But I haven't said all that. It's quite interesting that I don't think it's been that bad a week for Labour. Jeremy Corbyn performed reasonably well in the TV debates. The manifesto was radical. It was criticised by the kind of people you'd expect to criticise it, but it's still standing at the end of the week. So I don't think it's been an awful week for the Labour Party, notwithstanding what Chris and I have just been saying about the manifesto. No, absolutely. And Chris, obviously, we're still waiting, as we said, for the Conservative manifesto to land so we can analyse that. But there was also the Lib Dem manifesto earlier in the week. What did you make of whether their numbers added up? They essentially added up in the sense that they had the same amount of revenue on one side and expenditure on the other side. And the numbers were, again, quite large. About 50 billion, I mean, they had a number of 64, but part of that was what the Conservatives had already planned for. So 50 billion of new spending 
on top of on day to day, which again is a very large number in the elections past. We'd have said it was incredibly radical, hugely. I mean, it maybe reflects Joe Swinson's priorities, hugely education focused on the spending, hugely childcare, education, through life skills. The vast majority of the money was going on that. And on the tax side, there were some sensible broad-based tax increases, 1p on all income tax rates, a little bit of corporation tax, but also some quite big assumptions, like there would be a bonus to by remaining in the EU, £14 billion from that. Now, it's not unreasonable, but it's quite a stretch to assume you get it before you get it. You know, yeah, right? and I think, the, didn't the IFS say that would only really work if Brexit was properly settled for the long term, which to be is a properly big question settled, mark. And we don't really know. So it's quite hard to rely on these things. And then there was the usual £6 billion from anti-avoidance measures, unspecified, but Labour had the same number in their manifesto. There were quite a few things there that you would certainly be raising eyebrows. And if you were the Office for Budget Responsibility, who actually would be doing forecasts for a new government, they would probably not look very kindly on these and would not necessarily give them all of that money. I think one of the most interesting things from both Lib Dems and Labour you know, there's a one area where you'd think there's a lot of money to be gained from taxation, which neither of them went down because they both want to radically change the environmental aspect of the economy. Carbon taxes, nowhere to be seen. These are the sorts of things that actually would raise money and change behaviour. But that means putting taxes on your petrol, on your heating, all these other things. So you have to then question how serious are the parties really about the environment when everyone knows that carbon taxes are a crucial part of decarbonising our economy. Okay, that's an interesting omission. George, speaking of omissions, obviously no other parties were invited to the leaders' debate between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson earlier in the week. And the Lib Dems manifesto was overshadowed by a royal scandal. And actually, if you look at the opinion polls so far, I mean, I know we've still got a way to go before polling day, but actually the story seems to be the two main parties, Labour and the Tories, dominating putting on numbers, the Lib Dems being squeezed, the Brexit party fading away. Are we back into a two-horse race, do you think, for the last couple of weeks? Well, the Lib Dems need to basically turn their campaign around very quickly, I think. And obviously, from their point of view, there is that danger. The Lib Dems are basically fighting the Tories and they're subject to a quick squeeze at the end of a campaign where the Tories say, right, vote for Joe Swinson and you'll get Jeremy Corbyn, who you like even less than you might dislike Boris Johnson. So that is the problem. And it's quite interesting that over the last few days, the Lib Dems seem to have turned their approach on its head. And now they're saying, and Ed Davey was saying this this week on the Peston programme, that the most likely outcome of this election was that Boris Johnson would remain prime minister as the head of a minority government. And therefore, the role of the Liberal Democrats would be to soften the edges of a Tory government and crucially, of course, to call for a referendum on Brexit. There's a different question about whether Boris Johnson could ever grant that. But it's almost conceding that Boris Johnson is likely to become prime minister. And I think from the Lib Dem point of view, that's quite important because so long as the argument can be made, if you vote for Lib Dems, you lessen Jeremy Corbyn. That's a killer message if you're trying to win seats like Isha in Surrey or the cities of London and Westminster in central London. So I think that's quite an interesting change. The other thing, of course, is Joe Swinson's own ratings. She was untried at the start of this campaign. A very awkward poll this week by YouGov, which suggested that the more people saw Joe Swinson, the less they seem to like her. And I think I've been a bit surprised in this campaign that the Lib Dems haven't made more of the fact that Joe Swinson has a good team of people around her, including people who moved from other parties, like Luciana Berger from the Labour Party, or Sam Jean from the Tories, Chukramula also from the Labour Party, and Sarah Wollaston, a former Conservative MP. All of those people could have been put into a big team, instead of which 
they've built a cult of personality around Joe Swinson, whose personality appears, at least on the surface, to be divisive, to say the least. Yes, so I think we're going to see a major pivot from the Lib Dems. And of course, we've got the Tory party manifesto to chew over next time we all get together. Thank you all very much for joining me. So I'm now joined by Sebastian and Robert, who have been out and about in really competitive seats where Labour and the Tories are both hoping to return an MP. Seb, I'm going to come to you first. Where are you? What are you up to? I'm currently sitting in a pub car park in Darlington, in the northeast of England, which is a seat the Tories haven't won since the 1987 general election, but feel increasingly confident they might take this time. It's one of those seats that ticks the box of the so-called Red War, that in its economic profile, demographic profile, it should be a Tory seat. But being in the northeast of England, it's had a long Labour tradition here, and obviously until quite recently it was represented by Alan Milburn, the new Labour cabinet minister. And I'm just about to go out and about with the Tories on the doorstep here to see how Boris Johnson is going down, because obviously it's a very Leave-supporting seat. They don't particularly like the Tories here, but the question again is this thing of does party identity still trump Brexit identity? And some of the signs we've had this week suggest that Brexit identity is coming to the fore. There was a poll out about Great Grimsby, which is, again, another one of these Red War seats. And it has the Tories on 44% there in a seat they came nowhere near winning last time. So if they do take seats like Great Grimsby, then Darlington will probably go as well and plenty of others. And of course, Boris Johnson needs to get all these seats if he's got any hope of winning a Commons majority. And Seb, what about the fact that the local Labour Party there, though, does not have a kind of left tinge, as it were? You know, as you said, it was a Milburn seat. The MPs in Darlington have been new Labour, really. Does that shield them from the Corbyn factor? I think it does to a certain extent. And in Darlington, the Labour MPs, Jenny Chapman, who is one of Labour's shadow ministers, for people I've spoken to since I've got here, she's sort of quite well liked. She's been the MP for quite a number of years now and does have a local reputation here. But I think this is just the kind of area where Jeremy Corbyn doesn't go down well at all. Obviously, his very metropolitan North London outlook is a world away from the place that I'm currently sitting. But you could also say maybe the same is true of Boris Johnson as well. But as we saw this week when he came up to Teesside and visited some manufacturing plants and what have you, there are lots of pictures of blue-collar workers saying, we love Boris. So it does feel as if somehow he is breaking a bit of that Labour stronghold. But I think fundamentally, when it comes to polling day, we've still got a couple of weeks till we get to the election. It's going to come to this factor of... Do they hate Jeremy Corbyn and his policies on Brexit enough to hold their noses and vote Tory? And it's probably still a bit too early to say, but it does feel, compared to when I was here in 2017, as if the Tories have got a bit of a better hope of taking some of these seats this time. Right. Robert, you're in the West Midlands. You've been to the Labour Party's manifesto launch and to a sort of hard-fought constituency in Dudley North. How much of the policies do you think have broken through? How much are people noticing this domestic agenda that Labour's trying to push and how much being motivated by the Brexit factor? I mean, I'm actually I'm sitting outside a cafe in Birmingham. As you said, I came up for the manifesto launch and then went to Dudley North, it's one of the most marginal constituencies in the country. Labour held it by just 22 votes at the last election. And Jeremy Corbyn also ploughed the same path. He went straight from his manifesto launch to a meeting in Dudley, a fairly closed meeting 
with pensioners. He was ambushed outside of it by people shouting that he was an IRA supporter, which gives you some sense of the problems he's going to face in that constituency. I Mm. wouldn't say that a lot of the policies have broken through so far, with the one exception, unhelpfully for Jeremy Corbyn, that some of the people I spoke to cited the fact that he's soft on immigration. That plays in to the Brexit question in a negative way for Labour then, presumably. I mean, I think it's a very, very hard seat for Jeremy Corbyn to hold. And if the Tories don't win Dudley North, then it's no good for Boris Johnson anyway. I mean, just to add to the complexity, current MP is Ian Austin, who was a former advisor and close ally of Gordon Brown. He quit the Labour Party in protest at Jeremy Corbyn, partly over his anti-Semitism and partly over a sense that he was simply not a fit man to be Prime Minister. And he stood down. He thought about running as an independent. He stood down in order to help the Tories win this seat. And he's actively endorsed Boris Johnson. It's also one of the very few Labour seats in the country where the Brexit Party have stood down too to give the Conservatives a clear run at taking this seat. And I think it's going to be a very, very hard night for the Labour Party. So in terms of things cutting through, Lord Ashcroft's latest round of focus groups has landed as I speak to you. And interestingly, one thing that did seem to have cut through there, and he's again looking at leave voting seats where it's a battle between the Labour Party and the Tories, a quite sort of straight fight. The one thing that had broken through was the free broadband pledge, which had dominated for a couple of days. But it wasn't going over as entirely positive. It's interesting to me because it seemed to get to the hub of Labour's problem, which is it was seen as a sort of flashy promise is this the right set of priorities? Have you found any of that coming up in terms of these seats you've been at, Seb? I think the free broadband thing has come up a couple of times because most people do have broadband connections. There's no getting away from that. But one thing that I have picked up, I've only been here a couple of hours and spoken to a small number of people, but I think the sense is that it breaches a little bit of a sense of fair play because when Jeremy Corbyn's talking about more money for the NHS, nationalising public services... That stuff is actually quite popular here because people think they're getting a raw deal and that when Corbyn talks about us versus them, the many, not the few, that does play to the sense of injustice here that people often feel about London and Westminster politics. But the thing with the free broadband was, I have heard some people say, well, hang on a minute, why am I subsidising X getting free broadband instead of money being spent on childcare, hospitals, schools, you name it? And the fact the policy was not particularly well thought out, one punter on a doorstep I was out with earlier today just said, well, who am I going to get this broadband from? And it's like, well, is it British broadband? Is it Virgin Media? Is it Sky? I think the whole thing is just a little bit confusing. As Robert said, I think the manifesto will take a couple of days to filter through to people. But one thing that just struck me compared to 2017, it felt much more muted in its response in the media. You know, it's doubly as radical in terms of taxation and spending and nationalisation commitments. But it doesn't necessarily feel like it's going to be the game changer in the campaign because Jeremy Corbyn is a much better known quantity on the doorstep. A lot of Labour MPs and candidates I've spoken to have said their biggest problem is before we begin to talk about our policies, talk about Brexit, talk about anything, if people don't like Jeremy Corbyn, that will just end the conversation straight away. So the general sense I'm getting from the stump is this is not a Brexit election. This is a Boris versus Corbyn election. And depending on how you feel about either of those candidates, that's ultimately what's going to decide how you vote. Robert, what do you think about that in terms of when people are weighing up what their priorities are? 
because clearly the Labour Party has been desperate to get the conversation off Brexit and onto their self-described radical programme. Do you think they're getting across this idea that our priorities are the real priorities of the electorate beyond Brexit? Because there were a lot of giveaways in that manifesto. Obviously, the manifesto only launched yesterday and it will take a bit of time for people to distill what they thought was interesting. I have to say, unlike Sam, I didn't find the broadband thing coming up at all. One can overdo the how unscientific just standing in, in the centre of town and talking to people is. My sense is that although when I did find Labour voters, they were muted. They were voting Labour because they always had. Some of them talked about the NHS. None of them talked with any enthusiasm about Jeremy Corbyn. They were going to vote in spite of rather than because of him. Whereas the people who were leaving the Labour Party all cited Jeremy Corbyn and all cited Brexit. Certainly in Dudley North, I think Brexit will play very hard. I've talked to one guy, been a Labour voter his whole life, more or less. He said he switched in uh, 2017 because even though he had voted Remain, the people had to be taken seriously. And that was something that came up quite a bit, was people saying, look, we voted this way. You have to do it. What's the point of voting otherwise? And that came through among people who are going to vote Conservative and even people who were going to vote Labour. So I think Labour Party has quite an uphill struggle, certainly in places like Dudley getting its message across about the NHS and public services. And the thing I found more telling there, this was a once great industrial town with quite a lot of money to it. Stable jobs, wealthy people. It used to have a Bentley garage and a Rolls-Royce garage. And I think what it's looking for is a sense of where its future is. And it's beginning to see some investment in institutes of technologies and trying to create new industries. And I think that's what it's looking to hear, a sense of a future. And that's why they voted so strongly for Brexit. And I think certainly in places like Dudley North, the leave issue is going to probably stay the dominant one. Okay, interesting. And Seb, this question of the priorities, because in fact, Ipsos Mori brought out some figures this week showing that the NHS was now trumping Brexit as the number one issue for voters. Brexit's still very much ahead of anything else, but the NHS has taken the lead. You also this week, I think, have been down to Beaconsfield, which is where Dominic Grieve, who's no longer in the Conservative Party, is standing as an independent against his former party. He's got the backing of other Remain parties. Did you feel his campaign was going over? And do you feel that down in that sort of territory, where a lot of it's actually Lib Dem versus Tory, but in this case, independent versus Tory, did you feel that Brexit is still the number one issue there? I think that is one constituency where the whole thing will overwhelmingly be about Brexit because Beaconsfield is very safe Tory territory. There's about a 24,000 majority there and there's not really that many local issues that come up apart from, you know, building houses, HS2. But it's not somewhere, as Robert was talking about, Dudley, that is yearning to find a new future. Beaconsfield is very comfortable in its own identity there. But that is an absolutely fascinating contest because... Dominic Grieve has been the MP there for 22 years. He's very well known locally, but he fell out spectacularly with the party over Brexit. And I had a long chat with him when I was down there earlier this week. And he was saying that it was the Eurosceptics in the Tory party that drove him to go against Brexit. Because one thing I kept hearing over and over again from casual voters is this word traitor. And of course, we've talked a lot on the podcast before about the use of language. But people there feel so angry against Dominic Greaves. They're like, we voted for him because he stood on a manifesto to deliver Brexit. A year later, he then changed his mind. Why should we trust him again? So you've got that half of the Beaconsfield constituents. But then the other half, as you said, are the Lib Demi voters and some of the pro-Remain Tory voters who say he's a national hero. He stood up for what he thinks is the right thing. He's come to his senses over Brexit. We should be applauding that. 
I would say his chances are about 50-50 at the moment, if I was to estimate it. He's got a very well-organised and well-funded campaign. And as I've written about in the FT weekend, you know, he's got £40,000. The People's Vote campaign have been bussing in volunteers from London. He's put £10,000 of his own personal money into that fight. And he's just quite well known. He's a national figure, a local figure as well. On the other hand, Joy Morrissey, who is the Conservative candidate, is almost unknown locally. She was came in three weeks ago as the candidate and could not be more different, whereas Dominic Grieve is quite reserved, very calm in his language and likes to talk about things in very precise detail. She's this effervescent American character who's very enthusiastic, hugs and kisses everybody on the high street, talks about her love of Ian Duncan Smith and social justice and her love of Brexit. And I think just to show how complicated these elections sometimes are, when I was chatting some people in this Yield England tea room in Beaconsfield, there was this couple who said, oh, we're going to vote Dominic Grieve. We're absolutely fed up with the Tories. We just want Brexit to go away. They wouldn't tell me how they're voting. I said, but what about Boris? And they said, oh, well, actually, we quite like him. You know, he's a bit of a celebrity. He's like that Donald Trump, isn't he? And started laughing. So you've got people who are pro-Remain, anti-Dominic Grieve, who also like Boris Johnson. Yes. Long live the voters. Yes, Robert. I just have to say, I'm really impressed because I haven't found anybody preaching their love for Ian Duncan Smith on the doorstep <laughs> so far. It just shows how forensic Seb has been <laughs> Seb- in his canvassing of this constituency. <laughs> yeah, very eminently detailed inquisition on the voters of Beaconsfield. On which subject, Seb, just one final thing from you, if I may. Do you think the Labour vote will hold up in some of those seats? Because clearly this is one of the big questions of the fight is how far Labour voters will be prepared to vote tactically for other Remainy candidates, whether they're Lib Dems or an independent Conservative, and vice versa. Did you talk to any Labour voters who are standing firm or how are they feeling? Well, I think speaking to people at CCHQ, the one thing that they say nationally is the Labour vote is much stickier than people ever think it is. And when it comes to the absolute crunch and people are in the last week of the campaign, a lot of them do revert to tribal loyalty. And this is where the Tories went wrong in 2017, because lest we forget, they thought they were going to take all these Red War seats. I remember they thought they would take Darlington, they would take Bishop Auckland, they would take Stockton North, they would even take Sedgefield, Tony Blair's old home constituency. And they took none of them because the Labour vote was much more resilient when it came to voting day. So I think it is still quite sticky. There are still people who, as Robert said, in spite of Jeremy Corbyn, will still vote Labour simply because they don't like the Tories. They do like the sound of a lot of these spending pledges. But I think the campaign has only really just begun. The TV debate was the first time most voters will have had any cognizance that there is an election going on here. Once the manifestos have sunk in, once we've had more TV debate, I think we'll have a better sense. And that's why I'm coming back up to the northeast in two weeks to see what people think now and see what they think then. Because so far, people are so undecided. And I think that is obviously the big theme of this. There are so many voters who just don't know how to vote in this election that they feel incredibly conflicted about people, about policies, about Brexit. And they can't decide. And I think until we get to that final week, the whole thing remains just incredibly volatile and hard to predict. Okay, great. Thank you both very much and good luck on your travels. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to George, Chris, Robert and Seb for joining me. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT election journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Election Countdown was presented by me, Miranda Green, and produced by Anna Dedder and Owen McSweeney. Until next time, thank you for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.